Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hobo Thingo podcast. My name is Crystal Cedino, and I am the Training and Development Manager for the Native Learning Center. Really thrilled that all of you are tuning in for another episode. With me today, I have four wonderful guests. I had to take a second and count, <laughs> but four wonderful guests and um, three returning, one new. So let me go ahead and get rolling on who we have here. Uh, Dr. Cynthia Annette, a research associate professor at KSU and a data and mapping queen, who's <laughs> also a Google Earth Outreach Network trainer. You see how I switched that up there? <laughs> Go ahead and say hi, Cynthia. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> there we go. And then we also have Eugene Goldfarb, an adjunct professor at University of Illinois Chicago, who retired after 30 years with HUD and has been a longtime NLC instructor. All right. Thanks, Eugene, for waving to our uh, listeners. And uh, we also have Mark Junker, who's a tribal response coordinator for the Second Fox Nation of Missouri in Kansas and Nebraska and who's also active in many national tribal environmental initiatives. Go ahead and say hi, Mark. I think I saw you wave. Hello. Time Hello. to go. And, and I'm glad last... she got promoted. Amazing queen. <laughs> yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then last but not least, we have Paige Hinks, who's the Brownfields 128A Tribal Response Manager for the Santee Sioux Nation of Nebraska. Go ahead and say hi, Paige. And wave. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, Paige and the group are going to share their expertise on site identification and inventory. Quite excited for this. Uh, I got a little preview of what we're going to actually be discussing, so I'm very intrigued. Um, but before we get started, let's have Paige formally introduce herself and chat for a moment about what exactly we're covering in today's topic. Okay, great. Thank you, Crystal. And my name is Paige Hingst, and um, like Crystal said, I am the Tribal Response Program Manager uh, for the Santee Sioux Nation. Um, the Santee is located in northeast Nebraska in a little corner up there um, bordering the Missouri River. Um, and today um, we are going to definitely be talking about uh, Brownfield's inventory and site identification. And I think this is a great topic and a lot of um, great um, dialogue is going to um, happen going forward today. So I'm I'm great. I'm very grateful to be here and, and talk about this. So um, Brownfield inventory, um, I kind of wanted to start off and talk about um, that there seems to be a misconception between what Brownfield's inventory is and the public record, because they're actually two different types of things. Um, your Brownfield's inventory is a list of sites that are either brownfields or they could potentially be brownfields. There are your sites that are either like abandoned homesteads, abandoned gas stations, um, rundown buildings, um, any place, illegal dump sites, for example, um, any place where it looks like there could be um, the potential presence or the actual presence of a contaminant, hazardous substance, pollutant and such. Um, now, your public record is different where um, it is basically um, funds that you have used through like your EPA grants um, to do some kind of activity on. But those are the sites that you put in your public record. So if you do a phase one or a phase two on a site, 
that would go from your inventory into the public record. And that is, the public record is available for the whole public to see, to see what you're actually spending your EPA um, grant funds on when you're um, dealing with the brownfields. And I think sometimes people get those intertwined and, and think they're the same thing and they're actually not. Um, they are really quite different. But going back to the um, site inventory, um, what you put on your site inventory is basically up to you as you're the administrator of the program. You decide what you want to have in your inventory. Because you can have, um, you know, you don't have to just take sites that are the tribes. You can have sites that don't belong to the tribe. It's anything um, that's in within your jurisdictional boundaries that you can add to your list. And that can include um, sites that are, um, if you have a checkerboard reservation, can include sites that aren't owned by the tribe, that are owned by um, non-natives. You can put those on the list. Doesn't mean you can do something about them, but there's potential to collaborate with that owner, that landowner to um, remedy the, the situation. Like if they have an abandoned homestead or or such, you know, it's it's a good good way to build partnerships and relationships with non-natives, you know, within the boundaries of the reservation. If you're checkerboarded, you know. Okay. Yeah. Do you have like a a protocol or a standard operating procedure for um, how you identify a site and and move it from something you see in a windshield survey just driving by into something that is on your inventory? Um, you know what? I don't think I do. And I think, you know, you mentioned that would be a very good thing to have. Um, because like I have made a tribal response program, um, SOP for, for my tribe so that if something was to happen to me, um, whoever came in next could just pick up from where I left off. And I think that would be definitely a good addition to have in that so that, um, they know how um, to identify and put in their inventory sites. I don't have that, but that's a great idea, Mark. That is a great idea. Because the one of the things I've noticed is that um, as I'm driving through the, the reservation, you know, my, my path is pretty well worn. And sometimes my eyes continually <laughs> see the same thing. And when people uh, are, are visiting, I'm taking on a tour of the reservation, they see things in, in kind of a different light and they'll look at something and go, is, is this part of your uh, inventory? And I'm like, well, well, no. And they're, well, see that tank over there? Why, why? And I'm like, you're right. And so I needed to figure out a way to, okay, here I have this recommendation from a visitor off the reservation making a suggestion. And so it was a matter of, is there a protocol of somewhere to say, this site needs to be, be on it. I didn't identify it. It wasn't a priority to me. He saw it and he's a stranger. Um, how do I go about doing this? And um, I really don't have a specific method, but it was a, a, a something I identified not, not even that long ago. It was like, hmm, I wonder, if, you know, I could see doing it if a, a tribal member, you know, came to me and said, this site next to me is really an eyesore and a bother. It's a potential. Uh, source of pollutants and and I could do make that happen pretty easily but I was just wondering if you had anything like that as well I mean I have ways that um people can come to me and inform me about 
potential brownfield sites, you know, and I do have that in my SOP because I have a, I have a, a community re, um, relations plan that details how a person can come to me and report a brownfield. So I have something like that. Um, and they can, re, and, you know, they may not, they may not um, report it as a, so, you know, a brownfield, but they have a concern about this property. And I have ways where tribal members or anybody really could come and report to me um, their concerns. And then, then that's where I take, take it further and do the site investigation and determine whether I want to add it to my list or not. Um, Paige, yeah. um, I know we, we say we don't have a standard operating procedure formally written up, but maybe you could take us through a typical case. So like, tell us a story about, oh, how this property came to your attention, how it got on, on the the private list, and then then how it eventually got turned over to the public to talking about it. Maybe like walk us through one of those stories. Um, okay, so I had, um, this is, um, so I partnership with BIA a lot to clean up illegal dump sites, right? And um, every couple of years, um, they have funds where we can go up and go out and clean dump sites. And um, I, they always like make a list of your priorities of your dump sites that you want cleaned. And so I was making a list. And then the day that we went out with the contractor to um, look at the sites that I had prioritized, the BIA agent actually said, I have a site that I want cleaned up. And I had no idea that the site even existed. And we went out there and I'm like, sure enough, it was an old, old dump site that, you know, they used from an from a homestead um, that had been there since like 1950s. And so then um, what I was able to do is um, I actually put it on my inventory list and then we cleaned it up. Um, to go to the public record, to be honest, I haven't had any property that I've had to put into the public record yet because I haven't expended funds through EPA to put them in my public record. But we could, you know, imagine that if I if it wasn't BIA that was helping me clean up, but I was using EPA grants, then I would take that site and I would keep it in my inventory, but I would also put it in the public record. Now, when you say it's it's in your inventory, does that mean it's in BIT? Maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about BIT and how you use it. Yeah. Yeah. So Kansas City um, State University TAB program, Technical Assistance to Brownfields, has this wonderful, wonderful um, app called uh, BIT, which is the Brownfields Inventory Tool. Very simple to use. It, it houses all your data in there. You um, go in and you can um, set up a program. And then under the program, you add your sites. You can put maps in there. You can put pictures. You can put documents. You can put your um, phase one and phase two in there. And it just, it's like a database housing for all of your inventory. And you can print out final, you know, reports on your, your um, inventory that you have. You can print out maps of where all your locations are of your um, brownfields. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool. And I recommend that if anybody has not used the BIT tool to contact KSU tab and use, and to learn more about BIT, because it is a great tool, a very great organizational tool. 
Right. Now, I, and I, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things is that we found that it's not just Brownfields people using using Bit now, since it's it's password protected and it's private and it's a good way of organizing uh, properties. We we get people from tribal historic preservation programs, housing programs, and quite a number of of different offices now using it for their own purposes. It do, it doesn't have to be in the EPA chain. Correct, correct. And there's even a mobile version that you use from your phone. Very cool. Um, so what I am going to ask for, so for those listeners that aren't so familiar with brownfields and dumping sites and so on and so forth, why why do these dumping sites even happen in the first place? Like, what what is all of that about? Well, um, I can't I can't speak for any other tribe, but I can tell you why it happens here on our reservation. And, and that was the, the first thing that I investigated in my position because there, when I started here, there were so many of them. It was the legal dump sites um, actually outnumbered my regular brownfield sites. Okay, so um, one of them is um, our transfer station had inconvenient hours that they were open where people could, could take their um, stuff up to dump. Um, our work days are 8 to 4.30 Monday through Friday, and they would only be open 8 to 4.30 Monday through Friday. So people worked and they had no way of getting their stuff to the transfer station, you know. Um, two, um, they sometimes locked the transfer station so people didn't have access to it. Um, three, they charged a fee to take things to the transfer station. So it was easier to go out and dump things than to take it to the transfer station and pay the fee. Um, and for uh, habit, it was like ingrained in them. You know, they, that's what they did when they were younger. That's what they did back in the old days. We, you just took it out somewhere and, and you just dumped it. You know, you didn't think of the consequences and stuff. Right. So, and by transfer station, you mean uh, like what exactly? <laughs> um, transfer station. Okay, so. Our transfer station is where um, our our waste collectors they house all their equipment, but they take our our waste and they take it there, and then it's like um uh I don't even know what you want to call it halfway house kind of like thing where where um from there they they take it to the landfill. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And, and then also like big things that they don't normally take in an everyday household waste, we store there until we're able to um, take it in a big roll up and dispose of it correctly. So it's like white goods, you know, stoves, refrigerators. Right. Yeah, That's just think, have you, have you ever heard the song Arlo, uh, Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant? So that's oh. the whole story right there, him dumping it at the bottom of the cliff. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Paige, we, we know that, that you get very excited about recycling. It, does the transfer station play any role in that? Um, not yet. And I say yet because um, things are going to be changing in the future here, hopefully. By next year, um, we did get some um, funding through IHS um, to redevelop our, our uh transfer station. So um, we are looking at adding a few um, 
recycling equipment in there and starting really small. And hopefully that we can expand um, and become um, our regional, not so much regional like region seven, but like the closest recycling center for us here where we're located is approximately an hour's drive, if not more. Wow. So we're hoping to be kind of like a hub and spoke kind of thing where people from the surrounding communities will be able to come in and bring in the recycling um, through us. And those of you just those of you just listening, uh, Chris Page had a big smile on her face when she said <laughs> we're we're making it into a recycling center. Yes, yes, we're gonna start out very small and 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 see if it's sustainable where we can sustain it just through our own community. But we would like to expand and and offer this um, service to other communities as well because it is in dire need here. Definitely. No, that's amazing. And I love that collaboration and trying to work together. Tribes Helping Tribes, which is actually what the Native Learning Center is really all about. So that's neat. Um, all right, let's refocus back on <laughs> uh, back to inventory. So now you have, you know, I guess a list of this inventory. Um, who are you sharing the inventory with? Um, I share my inventory with anybody who wants to look at it. Okay. Um, I do that. Um, I like to share it with, especially like with tribal council, um, with the community members, because my list may not contain all the sites that are around. And one of the great, great ways to figure out what to put or find new, new, um, sites that need to be put on your inventory is talking to the elders because they know the in and outs of what's yeah. going on around the reservation. You know, they are like, wealth of information and they are fun to talk to and they have great great stories and so um you know i'd like to show them my list because i may not have a site on there that they know about and they can say well we know this site you know it gets them thinking with areas and 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 things like that and with my inventory i do something a little different and and how you organize your inventory that is totally up to you and how you're able to um, use that, it's, it's totally up to you, but I organize my sites by watersheds. Um, and so we have several different watersheds in, um, in the reservation here. And I'm just gonna mention one, it's like Bazil Creek. And so they'll get a number, they get a, like in my inventory, they get a brownfields number and they get, and if they're a dump site, they get a solid waste number. So they may get two numbers, but I can distinguish between like just a brownfield site and a, and a dump site because they're two different things, right. but they're, they're kind of two different things, but they're not because dump sites can be brownfield sites, right, right. but you don't have the infrastructure or you don't have, it's a different cleanup than your other brownfields. And, um, yeah, it does. And just for those that aren't familiar with watersheds, <laughs> go ahead and explain that. <laughs> oh, watersheds. So watersheds are, are areas where, um, um, oh God, I'm not good. Think of a bowl. Watersheds either. Like, like okay. a bowl yeah, yeah. where it falls and it goes to the center of the bowl and then it'll drain out. So, so 
you took all the your surrounding landforms and you said where does the water fall and then and you know in the hills and then come down that's your watershed where gravity will pull yeah. it you, you can think of all the land drains into a creek or a pond or yeah. a lake and that's and so page cool. that is such such a wonderful thing it's such a wonderful way to organize it because oftentimes the the different sites within a watershed are going to interact because of the way that rain flows off of fields and flows off of sites. And we don't often talk about it, but there can be an interaction between a site being a brownfield or an open uh, dump site and water quality, you know, in terms of groundwater right. and surface water and the, the runoff into a creek. So a creek might be contaminated because of an upstream or an uphill brownfield site. So I want to congratulate you, Paige, because that's that's a wonderful insight. Thank you. And there's a kind of another reason why I do it is because um, I have all my inventory in bit, but I also have it on an, my own personal Excel sheet. And if somebody was to um, want that information and I didn't, I give them nicknames. So, you know, I have my own personal nicknames for the sites too. And, a, and sometimes they can tell who the site belongs to it. And maybe I don't want to release that information. So then I just give them the information with the numbers. This is so cool. Like you don't realize that when it comes to brownfields and, and native lands and all that, I mean, I didn't before having, you know, all these conversations, like how mother nature the land the way things are laid out really plays a huge role in all of it and just cynthia your example on you know how you know water could potentially be contaminated due to the fact that you know you have uh, you know a brownfield site and a dumping site near one another and then the way the that I, like i find that so fascinating so fascinating all right um so let's go ahead and go on to the next one. Um, so we've covered who you know you're sharing your inventory list with, but how does the property get on the list? Um, how I put my property on the list is I actually have a Brownfields um, inventory form that I use. And it has like a checklist of things. And if it meets, you know, certain criteria, I have so many checks on the on the list, then it gets added. Um, sometimes I just add it because, um, I want to monitor the site. Mm -hmm. It may not be a brownfields, but it has the potential to become one. Right. So I put even sites on there that I monitor any, any sites that I think that, um, have the potential or are brownfield sites. I put on my inventory because, you know, you got to kind of look at it too. You you want to try to prevent brownfields, right? You don't want brownfields, so you might as well put on your list how to prevent them. You know, and so you want to include that. You want to include sites that could potentially become brownfields, so that you can keep an eye on them and stop it before it becomes a brownfield. Definitely. No, I like that, and I'm I'm of one like let's prevent things from happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's that's really nice and that's cool that that you do that and um, I guess encourage others to to do the same as well. Very cool. All okay, right. I'm just gonna mention yeah. that you know one of the things uh, about a uh, a property getting onto the 
to the list. It's something that as a property owner, I would never want to see happen. And, you know, if I'm a property owner and I see my property on a list, um, I, I'm going to want to know why. Um, I'm pretty careful with who I share it, my, my list with. I, I don't know if a whole lot of people um, ever actually see the entire list just because um, it could be construed as alarmist. Um, I don't necessarily have to deal with property values, but somebody else may. Um, if, uh, you know, someone were to have a property for sale and, and someone, you know, a potential buyer saw my list, there's something that could, could drive that price down. Um, so I am a little bit guarded about who I'm sharing that list with. Unless it actually makes it into the public record. And oh, yeah. Once I'm it's sure. The public record, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, yeah when, well, when things are. And I guess I should clarify that, you know, I don't share my, my all my details on my list. I have, I have a list where I share with the public that don't give out a lot of information. You know what I'm saying? A lot of telling information um, or private information. But I look at it too is that um, if let's say it's a non-native that has uh, property that is a brownfield and it's on my list, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't think it's going to, just because it's on my list, it's not going to devalue it because it's already devalued because it's already a brownfield, right. you know, and, yeah, and being on my list, it's not going to make a difference. And, and let me clarify one thing for our, we have all sorts of listeners, some who are very sophisticated, some who are maybe here in Brownfields for the first or second time. A Brownfield is not an official designation, first of all. There's not an, an official list they hear the Brownfields. It's more a state of the art that, hey, this is a, a stuck property. It's a subpar property. There's something wrong with it. Um, it may be contaminated. And uh, people are even afraid to spend money to do a phase one environmental site assessment. So it, it's a property that, that needs some care and attention. And often, okay. I think one of the first things Paige said was that a lot of these properties are abandoned. We don't even know who the owner is. There's some junk on it that may or may not be a health hazard. And we're we're concerned about two things we're concerned about health and safety if it's if it really is uh an, a, a a problem right now then somebody will go in and clean it up the government well whether it's a tribal government state government has funds to do that um the assess it and if it's really bad clean it up and then the the other thing is is more long-term slum and blight you have this crummy property in your neighborhood, it pulls down the whole neighborhood and everyone else's uh, value of their property and, and quality of life. So there's a responsibility and that that's what Mark's job is. That's what Paige's job is to say, you know, to maintain the balance in the universe, like right. trying to bring these properties back to be normal properties. Uh -huh. Speaking of, that's a great segue, Eugene. How <laughs> how does uh, a property get off of the list? Um, so the only um, reference that I can talk about is my dump sites. Um, I haven't done any brownfields, actual um, like properties, cleanups or anything like that. So they're still on my list. 
But my dump sites, once they're cleaned up, like I, like I said before, I partnered with BIA, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, to um, clean up these dump sites. They hire a contractor for me. They come out, they clean up the dump sites. And then what I do is I usually monitor that site for a year to make sure that there's not no any new dumping. And then it, as long as that, um, long as there's no new dumping within a year, then I close it and they stay on my list, but they stay closed. Mm -hmm. And I give the date they were cleaned up and the date I closed it. Because I don't think um, with, with dump sites, it's a little different because there's always that opportunity to um, have dumping again on it. Um, whereas brownfields, once you clean up and if you redevelop the site, um, more than likely it's not going to become a brownfields again. So you could probably um, take it off the list permanently. Um, but with the dump site, there's always that chance where somebody may come back in and start dumping on that spot again. So you, so I officially never take my dump sites, even though they're cleaned and I've monitored them for a year. I don't take them off my list because there's that chance that they could become dump sites again. Right. Um, but like I said, with the brownfields, I haven't actually cleaned up a property where I was able to take it off the list yet. So I couldn't relate to that. So hey, Mark, Mark <laughs> could you point to a property like that maybe? Yeah, I can. Um, getting a, a site off the list is, is sometimes pretty difficult. The, it may be completely cleaned up, but there are uh, a lot of pieces of paper that you need. And sometimes it's difficult to figure out who is going to sign off on it. One of the things that uh, EPA looks for is this uh, no further action letter. Um, it used to be called a cleanup complete or a cleanup verification. Um, it, and it is still called cleanup verification. And so you need to have a, a, an outside party come in and say, you know, we've looked at this site and we see... Uh, no reason for any further action. What they uh, said they cleaned up, they did clean up. Uh, they no longer issue um, uh, like a, a, a green light kind of uh, paper uh, just because of the liability factors. Um, you know, if someone were to buy the, the, the property and, and suffer some kind of loss because of uh, something you miss, there, there's some liability there. And so, they'll basically just say that you you've accomplished what you said you were going to accomplish and uh you can go ahead and again redevelop the the site at your own list it's the, uh when it first started out it was pretty cut and dry you would get these uh uh cleanup verifications and you know now it's just a no further action there's nothing on the site that um uh environmental expert has, has seen you know, needing any further cleanup and so, so mark do you get these letters from the state? Is that what you're getting from? Great question. So you have these procedures in place to establish a cleanup verification, and it goes along with the removal of, say, asbestos. And so once we have that asbestos removed, there's absolutely nothing to test, right? So you can't test anything for the presence of asbestos because it is gone. Uh, the tribal council in this case, for us, became the authority. And the tribal council came and looked at the site. They put their signature on a piece of paper that I wrote up saying that the site uh, had, had been cleaned up. Uh, there's no further action warranted. And uh, we went ahead and uh, didn't uh, redevelop the site. It's a green space now, but 
uh, we still need to, to put it into the acres database, which is where all this brownfields data is housed officially. And that's the nice thing about uh, the, the bit tool is all the information that you got to add into the government web, web uh, site is transferred from the, the bit tool right to the acres database. And then uh, they sign off on it. My dump sites are also in the acres database. And so again, I, I need no further action letters on those as well. Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, one, one of the things that Mark said was that um, when you have a tribal response program one, and an established one, um, one of the things you can do as a tribal response um, coordinator or manager is you can actually certify um, those no no action further action letters yourself as um, uh, a tribal response program. Under that grant, it gives you the authority to do that. Yeah, well, let me... And but I would caution that because like Mark said, there's liability issues. Right. And and if something comes back and it's still contaminated, it falls back on whoever signed that no further action letter. Let me let me try and explain that a, a little bit more. That the Superfund, the way the law is set up, it, it says the federal government will go do a comprehensive environmental response. They'll clean up the site but then compensation and liability. Then we'll say who who is the polluter or who's the owner of this property and why should the taxpayers pay for it? We're gonna go after the people. And nationally, there's only been 1500 sites like that, but every property owner of commercial real estate does a phase one environmental site assessment to avoid liability. And we discussed that in an, another podcast, but the way, you know, but then how do you clean up properties? Um, the federal government set it up so each state has its own voluntary cleanup program. Nobody's making you to come into it, but you're doing it just so you can sell the property, that people know that that you've cleaned up the property. And that, like uh, Mark and uh, Paige said, they don't say the property's clean, they just say no further action is needed because you've done what you're gonna be doing. But uh, tr uh, tribes are sovereign nations, so they shouldn't be responsive to the state. So therefore, as Paige said, if you do have a tribal response program, you could assume the role of the state and run your own voluntary cleanup program. Mm -hmm. And um, who knows what people have, I'm sure there's lots of things across the country. If it was me, I would first talk to the state and see if they're okay to work with and at the very least they have a lot of expertise that even if i'm running my tribal response program and i want to be the one to issue no further action letters for my property i i'm a little leery like Paige said i want to make sure i don't do anything stupid and i'm probably talking to the state people to make sure that we don't do anything crazy that's great. Thank you for clarifying that, Eugene. Definitely appreciate it. Um, all right, so let's you know let's talk about how you have this list of properties that may or may not have issues. How do you decide which ones to clean up first? Um, it, there's several ways that you can go about it. It depends on your tribe, actually, how your tribe wants to handle handle this. Um, you have ways where um, maybe tribal council has priority sites that they want cleaned up due to economic reasons, where they want to redevelop 
the site for business purposes. Um, so that, that may be a priority to the tribe. Um, there may be health factors. There may, may be a site that is um, has uh, high, high impact to the health of the tribal members. So you need to get it cleaned up so you can um, alleviate the, the risk of um, exposure and contamination towards the community members. So it just, it all depends on the situation. It all depends on what your tribal council wants you to do. If they have priorities um, economic wise or health factors, I think. Um, there, there also um, could be priorities where they just wanna clean up the site because it's a blight to the community and they're trying to improve the community. They may not have plans for the site, but it needs to be cleaned up because it's a blight. And, um, you know, they want to turn back into green, green space or they want to put a community garden or they want to put a park there. Um, so how I decide to um, prioritize my uh, sites is between those two factors. Mm -hmm. um, I look at health factors. Is it creating a health risk to the community? And is it something that tribal council has a priority over? Um, they do have um, priority rubrics out there where um, you can score your sites on um, ways, and that's a way how to prioritize your sites. Like it'll give it a score depending on these factors. So it may have like um, tribal owned and that may be like, yes. And so that'd be like a five out of one, one out of five, you know, and five being the highest, Yes, it's a tribally owned. Um, is there contamination? Yes, so that'd be a five. And so when you tally up the numbers, it may give you like a hundred. And then you have another site that maybe had like 75. And so you take the one that had the highest number and then that's the one you clean up because it, it meets all your criteria of prioritizing. Hey, could, I, could I make a few points about that? Just going over what Paige said that, um, First of all, like, you know, Paige said, oh, you know, I look at this, I look at that. But she also said, I consult with uh, the tribal elders. I control with tribal government. Uh, planning, you know, not just brownfields, but planning in general, maybe the first half of the 20th century was thinking like, oh, these planners are professionals and they'll make all the decisions for you. But this second half of the century, 20th century and through today, we realize the importance of public participation. We want to hear what the public says. We want to hear uh, what's their position on this property and that other property. We want a full discussion. Uh, not only that, if you're trying to get money out of EPA, like a grant, they'll want to see that you went through this public participation process to get that input to, to help make your decision. decision. Right. And, and also to um, prioritize your sites, it isn't always about, you know, health factors and what the tribal council wants. It may be what the community wants. Um, the community as a group, you know, um, parts of the program is you have to do public participation and public engagement. And so, you know, when, when um, I'm, you know, notified of a site that is a concern to some members, I may hold a public engagement opportunity um, for them to come in and voice their concerns through the public. You know what I'm saying? Um, not necessarily what tribal council wants, but where the public has concerns, because that is a big component of the four elements of a, of a tribal response program. 
Definitely. Yeah. And I ask, like, how else would, you know, you get the community, you know, involved or how would you get their input? So. Yeah, yeah. one of the things TAB does is we do go to communities and we help to have a visioning session where it would either be like we're looking at a particular property or maybe it would be we'd have a, a community session where there are a few properties and we have limited resources and how do we decide which one to use? And I, I want people to know that there's not, this is the method you have to use. It's right. more like you need a method. You can't be arbitrary and capricious. You have to be reasonable. And there has to be a record of here's why we decided to work on this property because we had this community meeting. We looked at all these factors and the group judged it this way. And, and it's just like, you know, we didn't pick it out of a hat. We didn't have one person knew somebody else. It's more like there was a community discussion where everything was aired. And on the basis of all this information, um, we decided on these properties. And here's the record that you could see the process that we went through to get to this place. Right, exactly. And, you know, each, like I said, each tribe is going to be different how they want to prioritize their their sites and there is no right or wrong way it's whatever fits your tribe whatever is the most concern for your tribe that's how you should do it and 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 there are differences in decision making processes exactly. and community engagement between different communities and different tribes and our trp folks are so wonderful because they're embedded within the the community and so we we always joke that community engagement is kind of a daily thing it's it's not like we see in some big cities where you know once a year you may have some meeting where people get two minutes at the mic it's it's more like Paige and mark and and the trp folks are talking to everyone on a daily basis and it's a it's a much deeper thing and the process through which communities make decisions you know be it consensual or or however that process works is going to be different on every single reservation every single part of indian country and every single tribe absolutely and i guess just to kind of wrap this up i feel like this is also a no-brainer but what do all of you see as of the benefit of you know public participation um i think it's great. Um, they have great ideas. Um, you get to you get a feel of what the community wants. It isn't you making all the decisions and deciding what's best for the tribe. It's the tribe coming together as a community and deciding how they want to better their community. And so public participation, uh, excuse me, public participation is a great, great way to develop relationships with your um, community members. Um, as I've talked about before, elders have great stories and they love to participate and make decisions because it's actually, you know, their place where they need to live and they should have definitely a say in it. Definitely. Anything, Eugene, you going to add? I do. I like to hear what Mark has to say too, but I'll just say it's a reality check that yeah. lots of times we get in our little groups and we say the same things to each other and we don't see other perspectives and we're so wrapped up in it. And then we go to the public meeting and they say, hey, what the hell's going on? And we realize like, hey, you know, I, I totally miss this thing. So it's, it's a, you know, it doesn't mean you have to do everything the public says, 
but you want to hear them. You want to listen to them. And if you're not going to do what they say, you want an explanation somewhere in the record saying, and here's what these people said, and here's why we're, we're not doing exactly what they, they say. Right. Mark? <laughs> well, I think the, the, the really neat thing about some of the public participation events we've had, uh, typically we want to make sure there's some food there that always seems to get people in the door because generally they, they're happening around the, the, the dinner time. And, and I think if you, if you set it up with some, some chow for people, um, you, you increase your odds of getting people there. And one of the things that you can wind up having, it's not going to happen every time, but you'll find a community champion emerge, someone who's got uh, a, a rather large dog in the fight and wants to see this property cleaned up and is willing to be an ally. Um, as, as you begin the process of, of moving from Brownfield's inventory to public record to, to clean up uh, no further action. Um, th those community champions um, are, are really pretty important in the tribal sense because we don't have a whole lot of uh, you know, businesses looking to come in and, and start a new business on the reservation. There's a lot of, um, well, I guess, just kind of uh, uh, differences between what would happen in a normal town and what happens on the reservation with uh, private enterprise. And so a uh, community champion is pretty darn important. And we see some of those emerge in the, in the community gatherings. They're the, usually a, a pretty strong voice. Sometimes you got to um, nurture them a little bit to, to come out of, out of their cocoon and, and be the, the champion you need, but someone that can be a voice at tribal council and help you push through um, a site that, that does need cleanup and maybe hasn't risen to the attention outside the environmental office. And, and I just want to reinforce that very important point that Mark made that um, w when, you know, Kansas State uh, TAB tries to promote redevelopment, we talk about the importance of stakeholders. Who cares about the project? Like Mark was saying, your allies. Who's... Um, you need a lot of stakeholders to mobilize resources, to find resources, to move a project forward. And uh, public participation meetings help identify and help get stakeholder groups moving in the right direction. Beautiful. Oh, that's so wonderful. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, now, I do love being able to give plugs for those uh, that are looking or seeking assistance in any way possible. So, uh, Cynthia, do you mind doing a plug for TAB? <laughs> yes, so the Kansas State University's Tribal TAB program is funded by the EPA. So we have our own money. We're free. So you don't have to worry about paying for any, any assistance or anything of that sort. Uh, to get to our technical assistance, go to ksutab.org, that's ksutab.org, and click on the tribal page, and you'll see contact information for the people who are the directors, and they can help you get a hold of anyone. And I know that both Paige and Mark have been wonderful with peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. Um, Eugene is, is always wonderful. Uh, and we have, you've heard from Scott and from Jen and from various uh, TAB partners and staff in the past. You can, Mickey, you can get to any of them by going to ksutab.org, go to the tribal page, and well, our contact information is there. 
wonderful. And Paige, thank you for joining us. Thank I you so much. Yeah, I love to have I had fun. This was great. Oh this was awesome. Thank you. Hey, invite me back again, please. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so good to see you again. It's good to yeah. see you. All right. Well, again, thank you, my guest speakers, for joining us today. And thank you for all of our listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thank you for listening to Hobo Thing, a podcast. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. And also visit our website, www.nativelearningcenter.com, to find information on upcoming webinars, virtual trainings, and future podcast episodes, and other great content. Um, until next time, have a good day, evening, afternoon, lunch, whatever it may be, whenever you're listening to this, we'll catch you on the next one. So for now, bye.